The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 5, and we'll read verses 6 through 12. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great. And tumors broke out on them in their secret parts. Therefore, he sent the ark of, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was, as the ark came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. This time we'll call the kids down front for their children's sermon. Well, the verses that we just read continue the story of God's ark among the Philistines. Last week, we learned how God destroyed the Philistine idol god Dagon, and this week, we're going to see God's ark causing more trouble for the Philistines. The temple of Dagon, as we learned last Sunday, was in the city called Ashdod. And the Lord sent sickness into this city of Ashdod where his ark was. The people of Ashdod had sores and, and boils. Boils are big, round, hard spots on the skin, and they hurt very much. God gave them boils on parts of their body that made it hurt to walk and hurt to sit down or even lay down. God was making it very uncomfortable for them. Besides this, the Lord sent lots of mice into Ashdod. The mice were destroying their crops, the food planted in their fields. So many of the people were now dying. This wasn't happening in any other city of the Philistines. So the people of Ashdod knew that it was the God of the ark who was doing this to them. They wanted to get rid of the ark, but they didn't want to send it back to Israel. They were, they were holding on to their silly dream that they had beaten God. But since the ark had been in Ashdod, God had destroyed their god, Dagon. God had made them all sick and was filling their fields with mice. So they thought they had beaten God, but God was actually beating them. So the people of Ashdod sent the ark to Gath, which was another Philistine city. When the ark got to Gath, the same things happened there. People started to get sick and the mice came to their fields. So they sent the ark to a third Philistine city called Ekron. When the people of Ekron saw the ark on the way to their city, they cried out, don't bring that thing here. What are you trying to do? Kill us? They had already heard how God had punished the wicked men of Ashdod and Gath, and they knew the same things would happen to them. Well, this story teaches us how God loves His people and judges His enemies. Last week, we learned that the, the capture of the ark and the killing of Eli and his sons seemed like a terrible disaster. But in reality, God was saving His people 
from evil ministers. God was cleaning up the life and worship of his people. And in order to do that, he had to remove the ark from them for a little while. Now, in order to punish people for their sins, God often uses other men and their sins. God's church had been disobedient to him for a very long time. And in order to discipline them, God used the wicked Philistines. But since the Philistines were evil, God punished them for their sins. You know, your dad might say to you, if you keep pestering that dog, you're going to get bit. If the dog bites you, well, hopefully you've learned your lesson, but your dad will still punish the dog for biting. And in some ways, that's like what happened. The evil Philistines hurt God's people because they had been sinful and disobedient to his word. But God still punished the Philistines. And this teaches us God's love for his children. If someone hurts God's people, God sees this as an attack upon himself. Now, God fills the whole heaven and the whole earth. He can't be kept in a little wooden box. But because that box, the ark, was a picture of God ruling among his people and forgiving their sins, God punished the Philistines for taking it. The Philistines were not God's people. They had no right to God's ark. No one but God's children can have God's love and forgiveness. And you should always remember that. I will pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen. Well, let's, let's recap briefly. God permitted the Philistines to capture the ark because of the sins of Eli's house and of all Israel. See, because of their sins, the ark was no longer a sign of God's presence, and so it could fall into the hands of the enemy. Since the Philistines had Israel's prized possession, it was as if they thought that they had control over the grace of, that God showed Israel. In that belief, they brought the ark to Ashdod and placed it in the house of their idol, Dagon. They believed that they had cut off Israel's hopes for the future. God's grace would now be subject to the power of Dagon. The Philistines set the ark in Dagon's house. The next morning, Dagon was lying prostrate before the ark of God. Now they ascribed this to chance and stood poor Dagon back up on his feet. The second morning, they found Dagon face down again, but this time his hands and head were broken off. Jesus had shattered Dagon like a potter's vessel. And here we have a clear revelation of God in his grace doing battle with the powers of heathendom. The handless and headless idol depicts the foolishness and powerlessness of heathendom before the grace of God. Because all the so-called power of nature or the power of the imaginary gods is the power of Jehovah. All power on heaven, in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. 
We'll begin with our outline. We'll look at the history recorded in our text and discuss it. And our sermon points will be applications of the doctrine taught by our text. Number one, redeemed with judgment. Number two, no grace outside of covenant. And number three, the doctrine demonstrated. Redeemed with judgment. We cite that verse a lot from Isaiah 127. Whenever we think of the church, we should think of it as a twofold entity, what we previously called the visible and invisible church. The invisible church is the true church composed of all the elect of all ages, and it is known and seen only by God. The visible church is composed of everyone who claims to be a Christian and their children without regard to the validity of such a claim. And this is the only church that we see. Now, that these are real categories is clearly seen in the history of the Old Testament church. Side by side with threats of impending judgment are tender expressions of love and care. You see this throughout the prophets. In one verse, the prophet is tearing them to ribbons. And in the next verse, he is speaking of God's eternal fatherly love for them. Another example would be the Exodus. A large multitude comes out of Egypt, but a remnant of that congregation actually enters Canaan. In our text, we see the same thing. We know that there had to be believers in Israel at the time of these events. We know of the existence of Samuel's family. Surely they weren't the only ones. The story of Ruth takes place about the time of our story. And there we find a spiritually healthy community. Within the larger apostate visible church, God had preserved a faithful remnant. The massacre of the apostate priests, the capture of the ark, the destruction of Shiloh was really for their benefit. Now, it's easy to see how they might not have understood that at the time. But the Old Testament saints were keenly aware of God's Sovereign overruling of all events for his own glory and for the salvation of his church. We saw that last week in the dying words of Phineas's wife. When she uttered the frightful phrase, Ichabod, the glory is departed because the ark has been taken. She was acknowledging God's sovereign ordering of these events. God departed. He wasn't captured. His ark was taken because he willed it. For the sake of his people. God was showing his grace to his church by judging its enemies. While the ark was missing, they might have felt despair, but they wouldn't have felt so hopeless had they known what God was up to in Philistia. Now let's look at the actual events recounted for us in our text. Last week we saw the devastation that God wreaked on Dagon. In our text today, we see that judgment spread wider. It began in Ashdod. Our text tells us that God sent sore boils upon the Philistines in Ashdod. The text says they were in their secret parts. That's what I was referring to in the children's sermon. God made it painful for them to walk, sit down, or even lie down. It doesn't take much imagination to understand the difficulty. Plus, it's kind of funny. I mentioned mice, and we didn't read that in the text, but some English renderings of the Hebrew do say mice, and it is a justifiable rendering of the Hebrew. Plus, the disease that spread in Ashdod appears to be the bubonic plague, which is carried by mice. Now, notice, this only occurred in Ashdod. This was God's way of making it known that the judgment was from Him. Had it happened in other places, the Philistines would have just chalked it up to another cause. And we'll see next week that they were desirable to come up 
with a naturalistic explanation. And this is an implicit admission of the falsity of their own religion. They talked about Dagon's greatness and they were happy to attribute their success over Israel to Dagon. But when push came to shove, they didn't acknowledge any supernatural power in him at all. Their human inclination to worship something, which is an eternal testament to God's existence and the true nature of man, that was the driving force for their attribution to Dagon of victory. But in reality, they knew subconsciously that Dagon was no god. You know, you've heard that saying, God helps those who help themselves. The original form is, the gods help those who help themselves. And the saying originated with a Greek philosopher named Diogenes the Cynic. His philosophy was characterized by a belief in self-sufficiency. And what Diogenes meant was, people do things for themselves, and then they give an imaginary god credit for what they have actually done. That's what the Philistines were doing. But the Philistines had failed to take Jehovah into account. Their worldview had no way to deal with the fact that God had permitted their victory. They couldn't bring themselves to to believe that Jehovah was any more real than Dagon was. He couldn't possibly be the one who sent the boils upon them. Well, the boils failed to make the point, so God flooded their fields with hordes of mice. Their food supply is being ravaged, and they knew it. Last week, we talked about the blindness of unbelief. Dagon has been broken like a potter's vessel, but their devotion remained unfazed. Now they're plagued with life-threatening boils and, boils and herds of vermin, yet they can't, still cannot see the necessity of repentance and faith in God. I knew a wild preacher of sorts who went around to small villages in the Philippines claiming to heal people by the power of God. And he, if he had possessed even a smattering of the language, he would have realized how foolish he looked. One night, a deaf mute mumbled some gibberish into the mic, and he took it as evidence that the man could now hear and, and speak. Meanwhile, everyone else in the village knew that what the deaf man uttered or mumbled was the only vocal noise that he ever made. Now, I mention that because this preacher used to confidently declare, miracles are the dinner bell of salvation. And he believed that if, if he could wow people with some healings, they would be overwhelmed into believing the gospel. And I always thought, has this guy ever read his Bible? Because the hardest hearted people you will ever find in the Bible are witnesses of incredible miracles. Pharaoh's Egypt is ravaged by plagues. All the firstborn are killed. Israel crossed the sea dry shod, yet he still disbelieved. Many of the same Israelites who crossed the Red Sea dry shod heard the voice of God speak from Mount Sinai, turned instantly to worshiping the golden calf. Multitudes who followed Jesus for three and a half years listened to him teach things that no other man taught, saw him heal the sick and raise the dead, still screamed, crucify. The men of Ashdod were pummeled with miracles, and yet they hardened their hearts. Like today's wicked Darwinists who always appeal to natural causes for all uh, phenomenon, the wicked liberal theologians who constantly search for naturalistic explanations of what the Bible calls miracles, 
These Philistines refused to acknowledge what they knew in their hearts to be real. God was smiting them. They were up to their eyeballs in evidence for the existence of God. But they still tried to play it cool. You know, this could all be a fluke. Next, the inhabitants of Ashdod sent the ark to Gath. Now, if Ashdod were the religious capital of of the Philistine pentapolis, Gath was its military headquarters. I'm sure you remember Goliath. We'll meet him later in 1 Samuel. He and four other Philistine giant warriors were all from Gath. If, If Ashdod couldn't handle the God of the Hebrews, surely Gath could. But once the ark arrived in Gath, the pestilence broke out there too. Now, this should have dispelled the silly notion that the boils and mice were pure coincidence. These things broke out in Ashdod when the ark was there. And as soon as the ark came to Gath, it happened there too. And it proved that this was no coincidence. This was the hand of God. The men of Gath, they don't dawdle like the folks in Ashdod. They decide to get rid of the ark right away. No dozen experiments to determine whether or not this is the handiwork of Jehovah or sheer dumb luck. Who cares? Just get it out of here. So the decision is made to send the ark to a third Philistine city, Ekron. Well, by now the Ekronites have heard the news from Ashdod and Gath. They don't want any part of this. They don't want to be guinea pigs. So they send a delegation to meet the ark way out on the outskirts of town. You're not bringing that thing in here. Their words are very telling. They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. But you see how blind they are? They see and they know that this is the handiwork of God. They clearly understand that this is not some crazy coincidence. There is zero chance that this might be a hitherto undiscovered natural phenomenon. And like all sinners... They're not sorry for what they've done. They're just sorry to be paying for it. Most of us have said to our kids at some time or or other, you're not sorry for what you did. You're sorry you got caught. This is clearly the case here. Because nobody says, Jehovah is God. Let's forsake our false religion. Chuck Dagon in the river. Turn from our wicked ways. Repent and worship Jehovah. Nope. Unbelief is blind. And only the grace of God can overcome it. And that leads us to our second point, that there is no grace outside of the covenant. The reason why there were no gracious effects from the presence of the ark among the Philistines is because the Philistines were not in covenant with God, and it is as simple as that. The history recorded in our text tells us, teaches us some very important things about God's grace and his disposition to those outside his covenant. Why did the ark exist in the first place? God gave it to his people. It signified God's throne. Inside the ark were the tables of the law. This showed that the law is the heart of the covenant. But that's not good news. You know, Job 15, 14 asks, What is man that he could be pure? And he who was born of a woman, that he could be righteous. Psalm 143, verse 2 prays, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. Psalm 14, 1, Psalm 53, 1, Romans 3, 10 declare, 
there is none righteous. No, not one. The good news is that the lid of the ark was called the mercy seat. The lid, as you can see from the, the window over there, had two angels with their wings out blocking their faces. This signified that even the holiest of angels cannot bear the sight of God's infinite holiness represented by His law. Their wings met each other right at the center of the ark's lid, and that spot was called the mercy seat. When the high priest offered sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, he poured the blood of the sacrifice right on the mercy seat. That was a visual representation of the gospel. God is just, but He is also merciful. If an innocent substitute dies in the place of a guilty sinner, the sinner can be forgiven. And this act was the very core of Old Testament religion. God sat as king over his people, ruling in mercy. And this mercy, or more properly grace, was linked inextricably to God's covenant. God saves no one outside the covenant, nor does he desire to. And this is plain from the fact that his ark, the greatest symbol of his grace outside of Christ's death, brought harm to the unbelieving Philistines. There is no grace except in the covenant. Grace is particular, and grace saves. There is not a single scriptural use of the word grace that refers to anything but saving favor. Whatever good things unbelievers may receive at the hand of God, it is an abuse and torture of language to call that grace. Grace is God's favor, and it is only found in the covenant. There is no other kind of grace but that which saves. The good things unbelievers experience are providences which are actually for the good of the church. For the unbeliever, they merely fatten them for the slaughter. It exacerbates their guilt by showing their ingratitude to God for good things. In 1 Samuel 7 and 2 Samuel 6, we're going to find the ark in the private homes of men of Israel. While it's there, God's blessings abound. In Philistia, it brought nothing but death and damnation. The very symbol of God's grace was an instrument of damnation to the Philistines. Proves what I've repeatedly asserted, that God's grace is found nowhere but in His covenant. The, the seemingly good things that unbelievers enjoy in this world can never rightly be called grace. I mean, look, if the ark of God didn't convey grace to the Philistines, how much less ordinary things with no spiritual significance? God had no sincere desire to save the Philistines. If He had, surely His ark among them would have been a blessing to them. God sent the symbol of His grace among the Philistines in order to judge them, not to show them love or a well-meant offer of salvation. The Bible says that God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, but we may not call this by so lofty a name as grace. If it were grace, it would produce good spiritual fruit. When it rained in Ashdod, did they recognize it as the grace of Jehovah? Of course not. They gave the credit to their headless Dagon. Psalm 73 teaches us that the prosperity of the wicked worsens their guilt. I mean, it's bad enough that they're ungrateful sinners who breathe God's air without the least sense of indebtedness to Him for it. But on top of that, 
They harvest his crops from his earth. They live off his bounty. They use his word, world to live in comfort and luxury. And they attribute it all to their Dagon. Self-determination. Life is what you make it. They congratulate themselves on their skills, intelligence, and technology. And never once acknowledge that all the things they handle on a daily basis belong to God. And this means that when they benefit from the good things God created, they're actually worsening their guilt. In James 5.5, God warns these people, You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. In Psalm 73, David says that the prosperity of the wicked is really just preparation for their judgment. He says, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. When the Philistines defeated Israel and captured the ark, they imagined that they had triumphed over Jehovah, but oh, how wrong they were. God lulled them into a false sense of security in order to cast them down to destruction. There was no grace in possessing the ark as such. The ark was a means of grace only to those in covenant with God. So no, the Bible does not teach, nor do its narratives demonstrate, that God has a sincere desire to save all men head for head. In recent years, it's become popular as an explanation for the fact that not all will be saved to appeal to a so-called split will in God. You know, it's as if he discovered after the fact that it was actually possible to save everyone, but now it's too late because he's already uh, reprobated some. You know, like, oh, I wish I could do something, but it's too late now. I can't do anything. When this doctrine was refuted in the 14th century by Gregory of Rimini and Thomas Bradwardine, the ones presenting it were open heretics. They weren't professors of theology at respectable Reformed seminaries whose reputations couldn't be challenged. In Luke 10, Jesus said that if the miracles he did in Bethsaida and Capernaum had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. The early 6th century theologian Caesarius of Arles said that if that bothers you, then you need to go ask Jesus why he would perform miracles there. Not only where he would not be believed, but also where he would suffer persecution and didn't perform them, where they would have repented and believed. You see, the notion of God's absolute sovereignty over salvation and reprobation is hateful to the flesh. There is nothing that man's sinful heart hates more than the fact of God's sovereignty. Ministers who are either unregenerate themselves or infatuated with the spirit of the age soften the message of the gospel out of a misguided desire to attract more people. If we tell people that God wants to save everyone and that they themselves are the deciding factor, we might win more people than if we tell them what the Bible says. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The first place that compromise of the Bible's message takes place is its doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Always. Men are obsessed with getting God off a hook that he doesn't want off of, nor does he need off of. You know what Caesarius' explanation was for this doctrine of a sincere desire in God to save everyone? He says, but lifting yourself up 
in the most proud tribunal of your heart, you presume to judge God, saying, why does he give grace to one and not to another? If God had desired to save the Philistines, here was the perfect opportunity. The means of grace, the sacred ark of God was in their midst. And yet rather than bring them grace and salvation, it brought them death, destruction, and damnation. Things which God has ordained as means of grace work for the salvation of the elect, but they bring damnation to the reprobate. And that leads us to our final point, which is this doctrine that we've talked about demonstrated. You know, this is by, by no means a one-off, isolated incident. There are several examples and even overt statements of this doctrine in the Bible. In Numbers 5, there is a ceremony performed by the priest when a man has reason, good reason to suspect that his wife is having an affair. The couple goes before the priest who would take a glass of consecrated water and add a little dust from the floor just below the, the altar. The priest would then write the law's curses for adultery on parchment and then scrape them off the parchment with a knife blade as if he were scraping the curses into the glass of consecrated water. The priest would then offer a grain offering and place a pinch of the ashes of the offering into the glass. The woman would be charged by the priest to acknowledge the significance of this ritual and then given the water to drink. And the scripture says, when he has made her to drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter. And her belly will swell and her thigh will rot and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. If she drank that cup unworthily, to use Paul's expression, she was drinking judgment to herself. But if she were not defiled, then the cup was a cup of blessing. Her honor was vindicated and she would be a respectable mother in Israel. The cup was a blessing to one, and it was a curse to another. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 teaches the exact same doctrine regarding the Lord's Supper. In verses 26 through 30, the Holy Spirit says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Some people in Corinth were sick, and others had died because they had partaken of the supper in an unworthy manner. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper by which Jesus feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood, as our catechism says, brought sickness and death to some. Preaching works the same way. It either softens or hardens hearts. Paul calls it the odor of life unto life and the odor of death unto death. It either sears the conscience or awakens it to repentance. These, these holy things that God has ordained in His church, the Word and sacrament and prayer, these things are no trifles, dear friends. These are matters of eternal importance. 
God has set before us life and good and death and evil. Let us pray.